Well, Daniel's right. I am so, so thankful that we get to take that message of hope to college students. Um, have my own kids, a couple of them are college age, and I watch, I watch with a broken heart the snares that their friends are falling prey to. And so what an honor that our church gets to partner with Craig and Kim down there redeeming pirates. Anything more noble than that? I, I don't know. Uh, and uh, tonight, uh, during our corporate prayer time at 6 o'clock, uh, we'll be praying for the ECU campus. We'll also be praying for uh, local ministries, our runner's camp, which is a pivotal outreach we have to our community, local pregnancy support services, a prison ministry here, a bunch of really neat things we're praying about tonight. And friends, prayer in the Bible is principally corporate. And if you're not participating in corporate prayer, you're missing what God intends for his people. So come tonight at 6 o'clock. And let's advance the kingdom as we, as we pray together. It's a, a crit, critical part of seeking God wholeheartedly, is participating in corporate prayer. So I, I hope that you'll join us tonight. Um, that's what we're going to be about. So if we could, I'd like to pray as we open up the word of God together. Right? Oh God, what a sacred thing. We do at this moment when the people of God bow before you and ask your help and seek it in your word. Oh, may your spirit come and move amongst us with great convicting power so that we might honor you the way we respond to this great, great opportunity we have. Lord, may we not squander it. May it honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, if you're new with us, we are plowing through the book of 1 Samuel, which seems, first and 2 Samuel actually, which is a rather odd thing to do. I, I personally have never heard a sermon series on First and Second Samuel, uh, but we are purposeful in doing this. It connects us to the theme that our elders have set for the year of seeking God wholeheartedly, because in the book of First and Second Samuel, uh, we encounter the life of David, who is one of the premier God-seekers in all of Scripture, and we have the opportunity to learn from his example in Acts chapter 13. Have I done? There we go. Thank you. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. This is David's legacy, and it's one of the reasons that we're studying these books is so that we can use him as a mirror to look at our own lives and learn how we can seek after God with all our hearts. But the story thus far in 1 Samuel is that God's people made a horrible choice. They wanted a king, not just a king. So what's happening? Um, why don't you...
The people refused to listen to Samuel, who was the great priest who was leading them. They said, we want a human king. That's what they're asking for, a human king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us to go out before us and fight our battles. A couple chapters later, God is speaking to them and he says, you have rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. See, the people of God have exchanged their divine king for a human one so that they can be like all the other peoples. And just as a lesson before we even get into the lesson, friend, that's a bad deal. You cannot upgrade God. There is no better life to be lived than the life of a follower of our great God. And the people have done a foolish thing. And God, in his wisdom, his sovereign wisdom, actually grants their request. And a man named Saul becomes the first human king of God's people. And to Saul was promised victory over the enemies of God, specifically the Philistines, and yet he would never, never initiate battle willingly with those people and lead them according to God's promises. His disobedience would later cost him his kingdom. The kingdom, it said, would be ripped away and given to another. In chapter 15, as Samuel the prophet turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. In God's kindness, another king is given, and we know him to be David, of whom it's written just a couple chapters before. Again, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And that man... That man is David. So David is now the anointed king of Israel, of God's people, but he's not yet the ruling king. Saul is still ruling, but David has been anointed as king. Saul's jealousy and paranoia over this causes him to seek to kill David repeatedly. It's an instance in chapter 20 that we saw last week when Chip was teaching us. Saul's anger flared up at his own son, Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, David, that is, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring David to me, for he must die. But thanks to Jonathan's saving intervention, as we saw last week, David's life is spared, and now he's on the run. He's on the run from King Saul. When we pick it up in our passage for today, chapter 21. David went to Nob, fleeing Saul, and to Ahimelech, the priest there. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and starts asking him questions. He says, oh, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered Ahimelech, the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission And your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now, it's possible that in response to the priest's questions, David is giving an answer related to his divine king. That he's got a mission mission from God that he's on. More than likely, 
David is fleeing out of fear of Saul and he comes to Ahimelech and his questions unnerve him and David just tells a big fat one. Okay? He does not tell the truth here. He has no mission from King Saul. David is exemplary for us as a man after God's own heart. He's not perfect. And he's presented to us here, warts and all, and we have to discern the times at which we follow after his example and times at which we learn from his negative example. And the early parts of this chapter are one of those negative examples where David is acting out of fear and not faith. What continues in, in the third verse, David says to the priest there, now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. And David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, at first reading of this story, you have to wonder, What's all the fuss about the bread for? You got consecrated bread and not regular bread and it's being replaced by hot bread. And Why not just say David needed some bread, the priest gave him some bread and save the scribes some work and get on with the story? Well, if you read this carefully, it may be, if you're familiar with the, the, the accounts in the New Testament of the life of Jesus, you may be having a memory ringing in your ears of where this account is referred to in the New Testament. Because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus finds himself going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. By the way, this encounter with the priest where David gets bread likely happened on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, they were, and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And those Pharisees saw him and they said to them, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did? When his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Then he cites another example. He says, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent because the priests have to work on the Sabbath, but they're innocent. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here, Jesus says, and he closes it out with, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is essentially saying that just as David was exempt from the religious regulations because of who he was, the anointed king of Israel, so Jesus, who is both prophet and priest and anointed king of God's people, has authority over the law in a much greater way. Jesus is saying there's one greater even than the house of God, the temple of God here with you. So David, in this incident with the bread, all these details are being recounted once again so David can point us towards Christ who is greater yet, the great anointed king who is for us the bread of life itself. We'll talk more about that in a minute. One of Saul's servants was there in that temple that day. He was detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, and Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech the priest, don't you have a spear or a sword here? 
I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. Now, now that's true. The king's business was urgent. He was trying to kill David. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. And David says something very interesting. He says, There's none like it. Give it to me. So now David is supplied and armed with Goliath's sword. And it says, That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Which is a very interesting choice to flee to Gath of all places. Because Gath is one of the five principal Philistine cities, the great enemies of God. David has gone to seek refuge amongst the enemies of God's people. The same enemies, by the way, that David had recently defeated in the battle with Goliath and then he led the great plunder against the Philistines. He's going to their city. Goliath. Goliath of Gath. He's going amongst the enemies of God whom he led the route on to Goliath's hometown carrying Goliath's unique sword of which there is none like it. You have a sense for David's desperation here to save his life and get away from Saul. But this is a really, really bad decision on David's part. It gets worse in verse 11. The servants of Achish come to him and say, "Um, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. By the way, that's the chant they sang when David came back from killing Goliath. And now David finds himself in this mess, seeking refuge from the enemies of God, afraid of Saul in Goliath's hometown after leading a rout personally against these people, carrying Goliath's big old sword around, one of a kind. And the people are recounting the Israeli victory chants that were associated with the victory over Goliath. Um, You know, fear of man will take you places that you do not want to go. And it has taken David to a place that he cannot imagine that he would have gone. And at this point, he is seriously rethinking his strategy. Okay? Verse 12, David took these words. He hears this chant. They're recounting his victory chants associated with his victory of Goliath and the Philistines. And he's very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. I think he may have been a little insane to even go here. But he makes it worse. He acts it out. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And the ruse works, and David is set free. But uh, what are we to make of David? I mean, on one page of your Bible, 
He's marching out to fight a nine-foot-tall military warrior with just a rock and a sling, with absolutely no fear for the reputation of God. And then you turn a couple of pages, and he's running for his life from King Saul, and he's scared to death of Achish, the Philistine ruler. Again, David is not the perfect model. He makes foolish and sinful choices at times. But one of the things that makes David a man after God's own heart is how he recovers from those choices. It's interesting, in the Psalms, there are a number of Psalms that are attributed to this exact circumstance. For instance, um, Psalm 56 is a Psalm of David when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. So this is written while David is under house arrest in Gath. He says, be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. How many are attacking me in their pride. And then he says, but when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Psalm 34, same set of circumstances. It's of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, which is another name for the Philistine ruler, who drove him away and he left. So after he's free from Gath, after God has rescued him, he says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You can, he's a little happy about getting out of Gath. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Didn't just get delivered from Gath. He got delivered from his fears. And now David, who erroneously fled in fear to seek refuge amongst the enemies of God, is now saying, no, no. He says, when I'm afraid... I will trust in you, God. One of the reasons that David is a man after God's own heart is not that he's sin-free, but it's how he recovers from his sin. We'll see more about that. This morning, though, some of us are in places just like David found himself in. Our fear has taken us to places that otherwise we would not have wanted to go. If we had trusted God, we would not have gone here. And yet, here we find ourselves. Places morally and financially. Places where we're being silent when we should be speaking. Places that we are going when we should be staying away from. If you're in one of those places this morning, the question is, what will you do now? Now that you've gotten yourself in this mess, what will you do? Will you, like David, this morning, make your resolve, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, God, and let him be your deliverer from the pickle that you find yourself in. I want you to watch and see how David's trust in God plays out in the next chapter, in chapter 22. David left Gath, 
and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there, and all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him, and from there David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But, but the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold in the safe place. Go back into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. He went back into the land. He returns to the promised land. He leaves the land of the Philistines and he goes back where Saul can find him again. See, he now endangers his life in obedience to God because when he's afraid, he's going to trust God. And so David realizes that there's no safer place, there's no better place than right in the center of the dangerous will of God for his life. I mean, think about it. If you were David, where would you rather be? Disobedient in Gath without God's promised protection or obediently back in the land with God's promised protection? Will you trust God this morning and go to the place that he is calling you to go? Will you trust God this morning and do the thing that he is asking you to do that you have been so afraid to do? Well, in verse 6, sure enough, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. He comes back into the land in obedience to God, and Saul does find out about him. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing around him. And Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, Give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant, his son Jonathan, that is, a covenant with the son of Jesse, with David. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Saul here is reduced to a paranoid, manipulative whiner. He says, will David reward you like I've rewarded you? Um, And he says, nobody tells me when my son betrays me. Nobody's concerned about me. And everything to Saul at this point is a conspiracy. You're conspiring against me. But Doeg, the Edomite, remember him, he's the guy who was back in the temple when David got the bread and the sword from the priest. Doeg was there, and he he was standing with Saul's officials, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and that'll be important, the son of Ahitub, that Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king, King Saul, sent for the priest, 
Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to King Saul and said, uh, and the king. Now, get the picture now. Doeg has ratted on the priest who helped David. And Saul now calls the priest and his family, all the other priests, to come stand before him. Saul says, listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Again, Saul's paranoia is apparent. Not only are his officials in on this conspiracy, now the priests are conspiring. Everybody is out to get him. And his fearful paranoia drives him to commit a heinous act. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that the first time I inquired of God for him? Was that the, the first time? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing about all this whole affair. So he says, look, David is your bodyguard. He's your son-in-law. Of course I consult for him. I do it all the time. I have no idea what you're talking about. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. See, even his guards are more noble than Saul at this point. They know this is wrong, and they defy their king. Now, this has happened before to Saul. He made a rash vow that put him at odds with his son Jonathan, where he was going to kill his own son. And his soldiers stepped in and said, no, Jonathan must not die. And Saul relented. And so in Saul's mind, warning flags, sirens ought to be going off at this point. Been here before. My soldiers won't do what I want to do when it comes to killing somebody. Maybe I ought to slow down. But he refuses. And he presses forward. And he turns to the foreigner, Doeg, to do the dirty work. In verse 18... The king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. And that day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, 85 priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. See, this, should sound, this language should sound familiar. This is the very thing Saul was asked to do to the enemies of God a few chapters back, the Amalekites, and he refused. He disobeyed God and kept their king as a trophy prisoner, and the soldiers kept the plunder. And so now Saul is party to this act against his own people, even the priests of God, that he would not do at the command of God to the enemies of God. Things are very, very dark for Saul. He propagates this great sin with no hint of any remorse. And that is the great contrast between him 
and David. Verse 20, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech the priest, son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. So one of the priestly family escapes from the slaughter and gets to David and he tells David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. And then he says, I am responsible. See, that's the difference between the way David deals with his sin and the way Saul deals with his sin. Saul takes no responsibility, no remorse. And David says, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. See, a man or a woman after God's own heart, when confronted with their sin, speaks like David. I am responsible. And then in compassion, seeks to right the grievous wrong that they've done to the extent that they can. Those three words, I am responsible for my own sin. No blame shifting, no excuses. That's what marks someone who is after God with all their heart. David takes responsibility for the suffering that he unwillingly caused another. Another question that presses us then this morning is, how are you dealing with your sin? Are you callous to it like Saul? Or are you willing to say this morning before God, I am responsible. I have sinned. One closing observation. Ahimelech, okay, that's the priest who helped David, giving him the bread and the sword. He's been called the son of Ahitub. Ahitub is the son of Phinehas, and Phinehas is the son of Eli. Okay, so that makes Ahimelech the great-grandson of Eli. Now, in our early reading of the book of 1 Samuel, Eli is the opening character. He's the priest who was the mentor for Samuel. He was the priest whose sons were so wicked and so unconstrained by their father that, that judgment came upon Eli for the evil that he allowed in the priesthood of Israel. And that judgment is in 1 Samuel 2 with these words. It says, The time is coming, says God, when I will cut short, Eli, your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and grieve your heart and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They'll both die on the same day and that came to pass. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint to me, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. See, in 
in an amazing way, Saul's slaughter of these priests is a sobering, specific, remarkable fulfillment of God's prophecy of judgment against Eli for his wickedness and the wickedness of his sons. So now we have his descendants slaughtered except for the one man who comes to David and seeks refuge there. David will in fact make him a priest. Saul's crazed, paranoid slaughter is not outside the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, it serves God's sovereign purposes. God will, often by the unpredictable and the unexpected, always, without exception, bring his word to pass. Even if it takes three generations, or 30 generations, or a thousand generations. And today we're especially confronted with God keeping his words of judgment. And we're reminded in Romans chapter 2, verse 5 in the New Testament, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We are promised there is a future judgment that is coming. It's as sure as as the words that God has spoken concerning it. God keeps his word concerning his promise of a future judgment. But thankfully, thankfully, that's not all. He also, in his great mercy, keeps his word concerning an offer of mercy that spares us judgment. Again, the New Testament picks up on it. It talks about waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That just as there is a promise of judgment and wrath, here we have a promise that there's mercy. There's a way to be spared the wrath of God, and it comes through the death and the resurrection of His Son by faith in the redemptive work of Jesus on our behalf. There are promises of a future of judgment or a future of mercy wonder, if you're being honest this morning, which of those promises is operative in your life this morning? What's your future hold? Because God has promised judgment, and it will come. But he's also promised mercy, and it's available. This morning, it's available in the one that David was pointing us to, the one who's greater than the temple in Jesus. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, Paul's talking about his own miraculous conversion. In me, he says, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And Paul's joining this great chorus of voices saying, believe, believe. Believe in the unlimited patience of God that's available through Christ's work on the cross for you. Will you believe and accept mercy in lieu of judgment? The worship team is going to come now and lead us in our time of response and they're going to sing a song that talks about the fact that only God, God alone is truly God. And it's our chance this morning to come to that one true God and say, God, I want mercy. 
I want the mercy that was purchased for me on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. I want mercy. I don't want judgment. And I will trust Christ and follow him. It's also a chance to affirm our desire to trust God again. Even if we've been wayward and our fear has taken us to a place where we ought not go. A place where we have lied or schemed apart from trusting God. This morning, in this time of response, we have a chance to say with David, when I am afraid, God, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? So if you'd like to make that your confession, we invite you to stand with us and sing, and you can come down to the front, and one of our leaders will simply come alongside you and say, how can I pray for you? And they'll pray these great prayers. So let's worship.